Hello, I'm Mary Portis and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow. People, planet and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? Music's unique power is the mysteries that can be captured in just a single line. And there's one Bob Marley made famous that I've always loved. None but ourselves can free our minds, he sings, quoting a speech by Jamaican activist Marcus Garvey. And the two men pose powerful questions about race, identity and emancipation from oppressive belief systems. Today, we're continuing to question two, be it ethnicity, gender or sexual identity, from Black Lives Matter to the woke wars. We're examining, in some cases, rejecting what we've been taught And this practice can be as much applied to our professional lives and the companies we build as it can to our personal ones. How do we reinterpret what we've been taught is the purpose of business, to envision something different? Because rethinking what we've been taught about the purpose of business and unknitting it to create something new is a commercial necessity in today's market. 58% of people say they want brands to be a positive force in shaping culture according to a global poll in 2020. We're moving past the age of monolithic money machines to companies that create a wider, more addictive presence in addition to financial health. And to free our minds from what we've been taught success means, we have to ask some questions of ourselves. What impact do we want to create on the people and planet today? What, if any legacy, do we envisage leaving tomorrow? How are we going to communicate this to the people buying into our businesses? I've been inspired by so many people I've talked to about the kindness economy who are answering these questions in so many different ways. Because there are many shades to how business leaders are interpreting how to do better. It's no longer just monochrome. Some are creating companies that truly value and lift up the people working for them. And others are focusing outwards on their impact on both the planet and the people in their supply chains. Some are doing both. But what all these businesses and the people leading them have in common is this shared optimism and openness to change. They've examined all they've known, thrown out some, if not all, of the rule books, and they've just got down to work. And by questioning accepted wisdom and freeing their minds of being constrained by it, they're bringing exciting new businesses to life and reinvigorating some of the old ones too. I'm Mary Portis, and this is The Kindness Economy. The Kindness Economy is brought to you by Dell Technologies. Who do I have sharing some light with me this morning down the Zoom pipe? Hi, Mary. It's Paula here from Dell. And I love the fact I'm working with lots of women here. Woo! woo. We are a very women-centric organization. I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if you, if you guys know this, but we have a massive commitment within Dell to ensure, uh, Mary, very close to, to, to what you talk about, ensure that women are in the position of leadership and that women are seen in the positions of leadership. So we encourage other women. Uh, and there is a lot of effort being put in through Dell, what we call the moonshot goals. By 2030, we want to ensure that 40% of the positions in leadership 
are actually filled by women. To find out more about how Dell <laughs> are embracing the power of the feminine, the women that's going to get us through all the change in this world, go to dell.co.uk forward slash small biz. Later on, I'll be talking to Anna Blackburn from Beaverbrooks. But first, we've got in the studio today with me, of course, <laughs> my little right arm and left arm. <laughs> little weird right arm. <laughs> Tell me something that's been happening in the kindness economy. Go on. Oh, this on, one's Em. so nice. Is okay, so this man, Simon Madison, he got in contact with us. And I'm, I'm not doing this just to prove we read all the emails, because we really do. Yeah. But bloody hell, right? Get a load of this. So he sort of started off by saying, let me tell you, I'm a very unreasonable man with a wink. Um, <laughs> but essentially, our Simon, he bought a working men's club, like a really, it sounds like a pretty naff, you know, yeah, yeah. locked in time working men's club. Do you know, can I tell you something really tragic? My 18th birthday was in a working men's club. You know, like, hey, on the hockey. It was all I could afford. And me and my sister made things like, what are they called, those puff pastry Oh, gorgeous, yeah. Like the, yeah, Yeah, with volivants. Yeah, volivants, but with prawn cocktail ones and egg And the cheese and pineapple and the little... Cheesy pineapple, the lot. And... My dad embarrassed me by dancing to Saturday Night Fever, thinking he was John Travolta. Oh Sorry, God. just gone back in a memory there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, the last working men's club I went to was Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, and I think that's a very different place to what um, Simon's building. But anyway, the Cricklade Club, um, it's near Sirencester. Basically, he took it on, and his plan was to turn it into offices for his um, events company. But his daughter was like, Dad, what about like opening it as a cafe and a bar? And he thought, oh, that's a bit of a mad idea. It's not really the right area. And then he thought, you know what? Let's give it a go. He had the right people around them by the sounds of it. Um, And one of his daughters is a a self-trained chef as well. And she ran off to the circus afterwards. Well, you know it's Gifford Circus she ran off to. Because I read this. I did read this, I did read it. But anyway, yeah, so he's gone off and he's said about. And the bit that I loved is he said, when they first started it, he's like, profit was never even discussed. You know, they just went, you know what? We're going to give this a go. We're going to get the best produce. We're going to do what feels right to us. And we're not even going to think about making money. And if I remember rightly, because I did read this, and I know you don't think we do, but (laughs) my team do share them because we do love to share the love. But he bought all local... Yes, produce, exactly. Wasn't it? Everything. So even the the ciders, the beer, yeah, the meat, the fruit and veg, the meat, the whole thing. It's so amazing, and he's just yeah. They've you know they've won awards. They've pivoted in lockdown as well as everyone had to, and they sort of created a socially distanced living room so people could come and hang out. And he's now doing it in other places. He's like secured, well, I say rescued really a national trust pub um, from closure, and he's doing the exact same principles, applying the same ethos, all about kindness, not thinking about we're not in this to make the money. We're just going to make a really great space. In the beginning, it was a gamble because obviously it was more expensive because when you do buy better often you do yeah. end up spending a bit yeah. more money so in the beginning it's a little bit harder to get people to part with their money but it's worked so well and uh, bravo Simon is it just a cafe I couldn't quite make out what it else it sounds is like there. it's a bit of everything I think you can go there and buy bits and bobs so it's more mm. of a kind of shop come cafe mm. Mm. Um, but yeah he's often um, and rolling it out across other venues as well so uh, I love that well, good on the, you, the Simon. big thing is we started off with a great idea got excited and thought let's give it a go Simon I'm going to come you know it is en route and I know you know it's en route to where I have a house so I'm going to pop in and see you do you know what he said which made me well, so happy he said I'd love you to drop in and see firsthand your book in motion 
I thought, well, isn't that nice? That's so lovely. Someone had to do Avoc- it. We haven't done it yet. <laughs> Avocado smash with two poached eggs on sourdough, please, Simon. All yeah, right. Flat white with oatly. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today is Anna Blackburn, who started as a trainee with the jeweller Beaverbrook straight out of university. That was 23 years ago, and she's risen to become the company's first female managing director. Not only that, she's also the first non-family member to lead the company that's been trading for over 100 years. She's taken the barriers and smashed straight through them. In addition, it's Anna's very transparent commitment to the kindness economy principles that I'm really interested by. She's been completely open, for instance, about her ambition to prove that being a great employer actually benefits the bottom line. Anna isn't interested in cutting costs and the conditions for her employees. She sees Beaverbrooks as a holistic whole in which valuing every staff member will in turn create better profits. And she's proved it works. Profits at Beaverbrooks have more than doubled since Anna took over. She's invested in her people, both internally and the people that buy into her brand. And boy, has it paid her back. Now often, when I talk to businesses about how to shift to a new way of working, the grey suits shift uneasily in their chairs as they wonder, what will this all cost? And I know there are many people at many companies who want to shift into the kindness economy but are stymied because other executives feel it's going to impact the bottom line. Well, yes it does. The kindness economy can enable us to do better for our people and our bottom line. And Anna's proven that, and I find it deeply inspiring. So, Anna, welcome to The Kindness Economy. I I want to start by asking you about your personal experience. And I read that you wanted to work for Beaver Brooks as a, a trainee because you had spent a year after university volunteering in Africa and you loved their focus on charity and the family values that they had. So why did you feel back then that those values were important? Because I think back to my early career, I was sort of sucked in, spat out. I had no idea that those values could be put into business. So give me a little sort of idea of how you felt back then. Yeah, I don't think I knew those values existed in business at that stage either. And having been in Africa, I mean, I'd done a sociology degree. I wanted to see the world, wanted to experience it. And then when I came back, I really just needed a job. And it wasn't until I went for that interview with Beaver Brooks and heard about the culture and the focus on charity and the fact that you could really have a successful career in this business if you worked hard and did a great job. And I think I was only hearing about it in the interview that suddenly I realised that this is the place I wanted to be because it just sat so well with my own personal values. And I'd never heard anything like it before. So I think I knew I wanted to work with people, which retail obviously is. But to find this company very early on, I think I was extremely fortunate. I was going to say, because I remember going to see if I could get on the management training scheme at Marks and Spencers. They turned me down, Anna. They turned me down. I can't believe they did that. (laughs) It's funny because a year before that, my brother had done a placement with one of the big supermarkets. And he had said to me, I can't believe you want to go into retail because his experience in that supermarket, again, wasn't what what I'd heard and seen with Beaverbrook. So I just think I was very fortunate very early on in my career. Yeah. I have to say, and we're going to be partly filming, but you've just got such a joy about you. Have you always had that? Um, 
I guess I don't know what you mean by a joy well, about me. Well, I just me. feel that you came into the room and you've you just got a joy and an energy that just feels wonderfully open. And I, I think I've always been the way I am. And I think the joy of being in the company that I am in is because I've always been able to be myself. I'm not prepared to compromise my values. And so I'm not necessarily good at politics and playing games. I'm good. Very, I'm very good at being straight. I'm very good at being me. And yeah, I love life. And I think we should all be working together to to do good, really. And that's why what you do resonates so much. But you, when you talk about you can be yourself, yeah. um, there was that wonderful Sophie Loren quote. I'm rubbish at saying it, but she was on Desert Island Dis and um, she was asked, oh, you, this director, you were, you know, he, he let you be yourself. And she said, no, I was myself yeah. when I worked with him. And I love that because when I wrote Work Like a Woman, it was about how. And the reason I called it that title is I want to work like me. Yes. I want to work as my true self. That's such a rare thing to happen in business. And you were able to do this very early on, though, was, weren't I've you? I've always been able to do it. And I think because of the business that I work within, it is a family-owned business. Yeah. So the only people I have to answer to is the owners of that business yes. and not shareholders. So I think that's a very different position to be in. I took on a, a lady that works with us now who's our chief accountant. And six months into the job, she told me that she was dreading working for a female. And I was really quite surprised to hear that. And when I asked her why, you know, she said because her experience of some female bosses was the fact that they try too hard to be like a man. And she said, and you're just the point that you just made, Mary, you're just you. And I think that is why it works so well. So it always upsets me when I hear in business that women aren't supporting each other or they're trying to be copy this alpha culture that you talk about, because actually the balance of making really tough decisions, being really straight and really honest has to be balanced with empathy and understanding. And I think when you get that balance right, then actually that's what makes business successful, whether you are male or female. Yeah. You know, I took on the codes of alpha. I wasn't yeah. myself. I became very successful, but I lost me. Yeah. I made money, but it wasn't from a joyous place. And it's really interesting that you were able to understand this, but when you talked about the soft girls, it's something I get really loud about because for so long they've been dismissed. Things like you've just said empathy. empathy. It's huge. It's so important. And I, I get asked a lot to talk about females within the workplace, but I'm as passionate about talking about let's teach empathy and emotional intelligence and let's help these guys that are being left behind to get those skills as much as to empower women to be able to have the level playing field in the business world. I think it's there's always two sides to a coin and I think we need to make sure there's this balance as well. Totally. So again, in Work Like a Woman, I remember doing a talk on stage and I said, you know, when I called it this, I was like, oh, this, this is going to upset some men. <laughs> But actually, this isn't about upsetting men. This is saying let's all be true to ourselves. And this guy came up, eight books in his hand, four in each hand, <laughs> and he ran a big building company in Scotland. He said, I'm giving this to everyone in my business. I don't care what they say. And another woman put up her hand and she said she circulated my book, but she covered the title of it and gave it all to this. And there's another big, big very male business and all of them just when they were surprised it was about what was she covered up the title work like a woman anyway just wonderful you're the first person though am i right to work your way up from the shop floor yes. to become chief exec yes. which is incredible and the company had been led exclusively by family members for yes. nearly over a hundred years so that's two big bloody firsts that you've got there so i'm going to ask you this because this is something i've read about so many times is 
not about you, but in books, when I read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, um, part of me was saying, well, I don't want to lean into a culture that I don't want to be part of. But one of the things that she wrote about that I found fascinating was that she just said so often she'd be, you know, having a meeting and the women would come in. They wouldn't sit at the head or opposite her. They'd sort of make themselves lesser in those positions. And I thought, that's crazy. And then I started watching it and, and have seen it a lot. Um, did you feel that when you got this promotion, did you feel you deserved your seat at the board table <laughs> or not? That's a fantastic question because, um, so I met my husband through the company. Within the first month, he'd said to me, you'll run this company one day. To which I replied, don't be ridiculous. This is a family business. It's never going to happen. But when Mark asked me to do the job, when my predecessor left, my first, we talk about imposter syndrome. We hear about it all the time. But I had two children under the age of five. I had my mother-in-law with severe dementia living with me at the time. And of course, everything that went through my head was, can I do this? I can't do this. Do I want it? And I think the big thing for me was having been so invested in the business for as long as I was. I've been with the company 15 years at that stage. Um, But I knew that if I didn't accept the job, that Mark, the chairman, would go externally for a recruitment. And I felt so passionately and protective about the culture that, to be quite honest with you, Mary, at that stage, I didn't feel I had any option but to say yes. But I was absolutely terrified. I didn't think I could do it. And when I went home to speak to my husband, he just turned around to me and said, it's a no-brainer. Of course you can do it. And I think to be surrounded in that kind of confidence, and because I knew I had the passion and Deep down, I did know I had the ability. Of course I did. But anybody that goes through a career progression that quickly to that level, I think self-doubt is inevitable. But actually, it's now been seven years and we've had more success than we've ever had and we've never looked back. But at the time, I really questioned whether I could do it. So I'm going to ask you, because your husband, who's um, called Kerry, isn't this right? And um, he has taken up some of the reins at home, hasn't he? Massively, So tell me about it, because I, I, you know, we, there is still a big thing to be done here where men still feel that, you know, it's not a total acceptance, you know, that you are the one who's taking up the reins at home. And I'm I'm wondering how he, he's obviously a man who's confident in himself. Absolutely. in your marriage. Absolutely. But so often in business, the social load, you, the first thought you had, I've got two kids, I've got, you know, my mother-in-law living with me, is yeah. because you probably were carrying a lot of the social load at home. Which yeah, definitely. Do. And I think there's always been a shared load at home. But I think when we first moved for me to take on a, a more senior position within the company, we moved to where we live now. He chose to step back. We had the conversation at that time because our son was 12 months old. You know, we didn't have family around us. One of us needed to be more accessible and be available for the children. So he had already taken that decision together, but he was happy to to step back and be the, you often talk about the primary carer. He mm. was seen as the primary carer. Although, funnily enough, I still got the phone calls from school. Is that <laughs> just, we, we talked about that. I remember my, I was in Australia yes. with uh, my chief exec, Corinne, and she got the phone call at two o'clock in the morning or whatever saying, can you come and get Huxley from school? She said, my husband is the primary care number, but they still, we thought you'd want to know. Oh, and, and despite, you know, so our daughter's now 10 and I still got the call that week before last to say, we're closing down school for COVID and you need to come and get mayor instantly. So I do still get it. But he was happy to take on that level. We talked very early on about how the, the partnership would work, how the care would work. He was fully involved in caring and supporting his mum. So 
he's always been there and happy to do that. But I think it's had its challenges for him because, you know, to be the dad in the school playground and it's not the norm and it's it's certainly, I think it has definitely had its challenges. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. And this norm, God, who wants norm? Isn't the norm what kills us? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, everything, all these wonderful interviews that I have, all of you are just not the norm. Let's celebrate the fact that we are not the norm. I agree. Um, you talk about empathy, but also you're a big believer in collaboration too, Massively. which has been a big key part of your success. You know, and I, I love this quote. We believe that a collaborative culture is key to business success. So communication has to be essential, ensuring colleagues feel involved and engaged with the business. So we're certainly not a soft and fluffy employer, and our goal is absolutely on running a highly successful and profitable business. But we believe that a happy workforce is key to delivering this success. Talk to me about that. Uh, absolutely, 100%. I think one of the, the real benefits of coming up through a family-owned business is I've done every role from being on the shop floor selling to managing a store to being a regional manager. And over the years, we've always been part of something called Best Companies. We've always had fantastic response from our people about being this lovely employer. And yet there wasn't an always a direct correlation between being this lovely business and actually being very successful successful. So in terms of when I took over seven years ago, the realisation I had that what was missing, the missing link was real clarity and accountability of these are the expectations, this is how we need to work together and this is what it will deliver. So that's a great thing. So it's the clarity, yes. this is the goal, this is where we Absolutely. want, this is our purpose. Yeah. And actually, but we need to work together to do it. And those soft skills, but they're also move outside those. We're going to be here to support you, I guess. Yep. We're going to be here to understand what your needs are outside the business and inside. Absolutely. And in return, this is what we will achieve. So historically, I think the responsibility was seen as the company's responsibility to do things for people. Whereas what we did was we took that and turned it on its head and it's our responsibility together. We're all adults. We have a shared responsibility to each other and to the business. Um, but actually, it's a two-way relationship. And that really changed when people realised that they could make such a difference. What we saw with increased accountability, I have managers saying to me, my job has never been so intense and the expectations have never been so high, but I've never felt so engaged and so happy. And this is managers that have been with us for 20, 25 years. And that was music to my ears because it just said that this collaborative approach was actually not only good for the bottom line, but it was absolutely the right thing for our people as well. And that balance was just lovely. Let's talk about this balance because, you know, I often have uh, people go, oh, well, you know, kindness, we can't do kindness in business <laughs> because like, you know, well, we've seen those people, we've seen who they are in business. I call them the the give a fucks and the don't give a fucks, to be quite <laughs> honest. So the don't give a fucks what might not be listening to this, but you've taken the operating profit from just under 6 million in 13, 14 to just over 13 million year ending 1920. So you've got a spot on the best 100 companies yeah. to work for, list of 18 consecutive years, and you were number one in 2021. Over a third of your staff have been with the company for over 15 years. If that isn't credit, I don't know what. That's extraordinary turnaround. Um, and what would you put at the centre of that? The three key things you believe in. Them. The first thing I just want to do really quickly, Mary, before it's I say It's not just this, you. Well, no, it's, it's not even that. You know, you've quoted some figures there. But I think for me, 
it's the importance of the sustainability of that performance that's key as well. Because when I first took over seven years ago, I made a commitment to the chairman that we would turn the profitability around and that it was about year on year on year. I didn't want a one hit wonder. Yeah. And for the last seven years, our profitability has averaged over 13 million. So it's not that this is a one a one hit wonder. And this is the importance because you get the culture right and actually it creates sustainable change at a much higher level on the bottom line. But if you see, if you looked at this where you have people that just look at growth being different from sustainability yeah. what would you see were the key tenets and behaviors that you thought that you put in that wasn't just about growth it was about how you were creating a sustainable living organization yeah. that consistently performed I would say and the, thrived. the key things for us were about communication. You talked about yeah. it before. We we articulated and communicated a long-term view for the business and shared very early on that the better the business performed, the more that we would be able to do for our people, for our communities, for our charity, and really about this almost virtuous cycle that the better we do, the better everybody does. And I think one of the key things that COVID has taught us as well is we have to be agile and respond, but actually we also have to keep an eye on that that longer term. You know, in 2019, it was our centenary. And we made a commitment at that point to invest in areas that we'd never done before to really try things and and use it as a real springboard into the future. And again, you know, you have to try new things. But again, you have to get your engagement from your people. And I think all of that has paid into the continued success that we've seen. And we've bounced out of COVID stronger than ever. Yeah. So talk to me about the charity and community work, because that was right from day one within Beaverbrooks, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was. What what are you doing? Tell me what you do. So when I first joined the business, gosh, 23 years ago, we were donating 10% of our post-tax profits to charity. And today that's gone to 20%. We support over 250 charities every year and we engage our people with the whole charity community side of enriching lives through time giving, through payroll giving and what that gives to our people to be involved in giving something back. It is, again, such an amazing way to spread that self-awareness, that joy, that empathy and understanding for others. And again, we've seen it over the, the last 12 months with COVID, especially where people have really wanted to give something back and that belonging and the difference they feel they can make is significant. How do you choose the charities and partnerships? There's two different ways. There are four of us within the business that are charity trustees for the Beaverbrooks Charitable Trust. And in terms of the larger amounts, we work together with our people to look at donations. But we also, we do something every year where each team member, each team get to make team donations. So £100 per person um, as a team, and they choose a local charity to get involved with. We like to try and build relationships, long-standing relationships with our local communities. So those community connections, obviously through your physical space and your retail shops. So the high street is important, I guess, to you guys. Massively important. You know, we've got a charity we work with up in the the Metro Centre store and our whole team are engaged there. It's a charity called Fact. It's a cancer charity. And they've been involved for a number of years. And that came about because one of our customers was actually the founder of the charity. And that's just one example where our team's reaching out and getting that that connection locally. Um, I think it just makes a real difference to obviously the charity, but also to our team to make that that wonderful difference to people that need it. You talk about and it's a very sort of um, nuanced change, but the distinction between being a good employer 
and a good workplace. Yes. So tell me what that distinction is. This is a little bit what I was referring to before, where the the responsibility is a family-owned business. I think the responsibility historically was what the company would do for us. Um, and it was the emphasis was on the company to do. Whereas I think to be a great workplace, Mark and I cannot influence what each and every, we have 72 stores. They all have microcultures in effect and we have an office full of departments. So no matter how great we are as leaders, it's not about us. It's about each and every individual in those different environments to buy into our purpose, our culture, enriching lives, and to be able to make that positive difference. So in terms of it being a great workplace, we can't create that as an employer. Only our people together can create that. But how did you do that then? How did you give them the the power to, to really be a collaborative process on creating that culture? We shared with them that's what we wanted to achieve. Yeah. One of the things that we did was we actually, we have a, an internal Beaverbrooks way, which for a lot of companies is a mission statement. That was revamped a number of years ago. But before it was revamped, I got feedback from everybody across the company and their teams and their departments of what they felt worked, what was different, how the company had changed and evolved. And we introduced new values as a, as a response to that. And again, it's taken our people on that journey to be able to understand, right, I do have a voice. I can make a difference. And each and every person got the opportunity to input into that. And that goes a long way because mm. when people feel that they are listened to and they are valued, and they absolutely are at Beaver Brooks, then that pays into, right, I have a responsibility to my team. The managers were entrusted with more information than ever, and they felt that responsibility. They knew that that, that was their, the expectation of them. And as I said before, when people are clear on expectations and they know that they need to deliver on those because they also agree with them, then you're far more likely to get that success. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking about this business, you know, the jewellery industry. And I want to know, how can you be sure that just because you've signed up to an agreement that your suppliers, because we hear this time and time again, people, I didn't know, and we, we're going to look at our factories. And you think, how can you not know that someone is being underpaid, that they're working ridiculous hours, that you, the effect of what your production's having on, on the environment? So, your business is dependent on mining across the world, thousands of miles from you. How can you be sure? How can you be sure when we buy that we're buying ethically? I think it's a great question, Mary, and I think it's not, a, to be honest, I think it's not a straightforward answer. We were the first multiple jeweller to have signed up to the RJC, which is the Responsible Jewellery Council. We are actively part of that and always reviewing where our business is, where our factories are and how they work. And at this stage, we are confident um, but can you ever be 100% confident? I'm not sure that any of us can. And I think that is where we continually are working with suppliers. I think what we do do is the suppliers that we work with, we have relationships that span decades, so we know them well. But we are always looking and always trying to do our very best to make sure that we we are as clean as we can be, always. Do you know, I was thinking about this when you were talking about it, is that... Um, when I heard there was the um, the factories that were had up one very, very profitable website, fashion website, you know, was had up for the people working in the factories that were um, being abused, basically, working practices, not paid enough, working ridiculous hours, all those things that, that hit the wall. And what this company came out and said was like, we didn't know, we didn't know, but we'll check on it. And they they gave the factories X amount of months to get up to what good practice was. Yeah. 
these poor factories, you know, didn't have the infrastructure and the ability to do that. And then they said, well, we're not working with you anymore, which is equally shit. I was going to say, walking away like that isn't the right thing either, because for us, it's about working with and investing in our partners, our suppliers. We do and have visited factories ourselves. We have an open policy if we can visit our factories at any point that we can choose to. So it is about working with people. Yes. I think I think the, the reactionary easy thing is to say, well, if you're not doing what we want you to do we'll leave but actually that leaves bigger holes in in communities and economies than actually staying and working with them so I think we yeah I think you have to work with people to get the the best outcomes and I'm just thinking about diversity and you you being a woman at the top have you got many women in the business yeah we are actually about 84% 83% female are you but how much what percentage on the senior roles are female so directors we have chairman who's a male and then we have four directors two male two female Okay, cool. And we have 40% of our senior management team who are female, which if you look back about 10 years, then it was much less than that. But it's it's a real balance because we want diversity. We want diversity of all kinds, yep. but we also want the right person for the job. So I was asked recently about our gender pay gap. And the only reason we have any gender pay gap at all is because of the way we remunerate our senior management team mm. that is slightly more male than female. Mm. But I'm actually really comfortable with that balance because we have have the right people in the right jobs so I think as well as having diversity there has to be balance with you have to make sure you've got the right person fantastic business and finally Anna though as a uh, as a signed up member of the kindness economy Beaver brilliantly what would be your dreams for the future of the next five years what would you like to see in business I would definitely like to see more, we've, we've touched on it before, in terms of the softer skills, having more credibility, more importance in the business world. I think that introducing empathy and understanding, actually, you, you talked about it, Mary, on, on part of work like a woman. It's working like a human being. I think gone are the days where you can't bring yourself into work. We're all husbands, sons, wives, mothers, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever. And actually, I think if we could get to a point in the next few years where there was a greater understanding that people are actually human beings and it isn't just about the bottom line, but actually the better you do and the more you give back, the better business is. I think that would be an amazing step. It's that way in life, isn't it? The better you do and the better you give, the better comes back to you, doesn't it? Why does why does success have to be at the expense of something? And often that something is how people feel or, you know, that whole people dreading a Monday morning because they don't enjoy their work environment. Going to work and doing something you love should be fulfilling and it should be a joy. And I would love more people to experience work in that way. That's a beautiful note to end on. You talking about that, I spoke to a brilliant chief exec who runs one of the big businesses who absolutely is a, a, you know, a member of the kindness economy. And he told me that when he was a manager in one of the very, very, very big retail chains, he used to come in on a Monday morning and two of his colleagues used to go in the loo and be sick before they were going through the numbers. That breaks my heart. Yeah, it does me too, doesn't it? <laughs> it yeah. It's awful. I've never, and I can honestly say I've never felt that way. And I think there's so many people that could have more joy in their lives if yeah. they have more joy in their work. Well, Anna, thank you so much for spreading joy, for actually being an incredible visionary who's been doing this for many years. I feel I've got to catch up with you. (laughs) Hardly. (laughs) Most people I've interviewed are owner-operators, but Anna isn't. She joined a family business straight out of university and she worked her way up to become managing director. 
She did that, of course, using all the great stuff like intelligence, ambition and bravery. But also, crucially this, she was given the freedom to be her authentic self. And of course, she was able then to steer Beaver Brooks in the direction she felt instinctively was right. Creating that sense of freedom in the people who work for you is a huge challenge in businesses that have been going for decades and have a way of doing things. Bravo to Beaver Brooks to creating solid foundations and then giving Anna the freedom to run with them. She tapped into a shared value system and she grew it. And in doing so, she's made the company even more profitable. That's the thing about the kindness economy. It does increase your bottom line. So often when I go into businesses with my Porter's crew, people question if this is just a nice to have, but it's not. You can make money and you can do better. It's crucial though to create and build on shared values, instilling them in everyone you work with. The people we work with are just as important as the way we work. And for a business to thrive, we must all share a core value system. Anna has proved just how successful that can make a company. Join me next week on The Kindness Economy when I'm joined by Juliet Davenport, the founder of Good Energy, who took on an industry dominated by old fossils. Her words, not mine. Anyway, she was determined to do things differently and you are just going to love listening to her.